got a Bible, you can open it and turn to 2 Samuel 24. If you don't know where 2 Samuel is, it's in the Old Testament. And if you hit 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, then you've gone too far. Yeah. Okay, 2 Samuel 24. And if you've been with us this semester, we've been talking about uh, Psalm 139, but we've also been talking about the life of David. And so with this last evening, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the end of David's life, one of the last stories that Scripture has about him, uh, just kind of as a way of finishing us off for the semester. It's also one of my favorite passages. Um, I just think this passage has meant a lot to me and has really influenced a lot of, of things and um, I, was, I first saw it and first was taught about it when I was in a very uh, difficult point in my life, and it was very life-changing for me just to see um, what some of the things were and the way that David talks about certain things. So uh, that's where we are, 2 Samuel 24. Um, as you turn there, as you keep getting there, um, one of the things that we love is we love people's last words, right? We love to look up, oh, what did this person say when it was their last words? Or on the desk, what did this person say? Some of you might know the story that we don't know Albert Einstein's last words. Has anybody ever heard that? So he was in the hospital, but he was in the U.S., and his nurse didn't know German, and he said his last words in German. And so, like, the last words of Albert Einstein, nobody knows. And everybody's wondering, what could it have been? Could it have been some mathematical formula? Could it have been some universal truth? Who knows, right? But we don't know. Um, but the beauty of the story at the end of 2 Samuel is it's basically the last... I'm going to stand just to make sure I get out as, as much smoke as possible. Um, is it's the last story in the life of David. In chapter 23 in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, we have his final words. It actually says the final words of David. But then in 2 Samuel 24, we have the last story. And this story is basically summing up his life, summing up what he was like as a king, and it's really giving us a good idea of what David is all about. Now, We've talked a lot this year and this semester about what it means to be after God's own heart, what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart. And so this story sums that up really well. And really, I've boiled everything down each, each week to questions, right? We had a different question each week. Well, the question that comes to us tonight is, what can I offer? Right? After seeing Psalm 39, after seeing who Jesus is, after seeing the life of David, what can I offer? What does that look like? What does living faithfully look like? And so to see what that all means, I'm going to read this chapter for us, but I'm going to read it in three different sections, because it's kind of long. So I'll read a section, and I'll talk about it. And the, the first section is sin, the second section is confession, and the third, third section is sacrifice. So the first section, sin, is the first nine or ten verses in 2 Samuel 24. So let me read them for us. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Erer and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan 
And from Dan they went around to Sidon, and to the fortress of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land that came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel, there were eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were five hundred thousand. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. Okay, so first nine or ten verses, the theme is sin. So we see in these ten verses that David commits this sin, but there's a lot of questions in these ten verses, right? First question, why is God angry with Israel, right? From the very first, God's anger was kindled against Israel. We wonder, what happened? What did they do, right? And it doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us the nice, neat explanation to say, here's what Israel did. Now, if you've been reading First and Second Samuel with us, you'll know that a lot of times they rebel, they go against David, they follow after other kings. Often in their history, they follow after other gods. They don't obey what the God has said, right? So we know there's enough reason, but we don't get the specific reason. And I think it also could be possibly similar to why what David does is sinful, which we'll talk about in just a second. But maybe that's not your question. Maybe your question is, how does God do this? What does it mean that God incites David? That, that seems kind of weird, right? That seems like different than what we would think of God. Well, there's also a parallel passage to this in 1 Chronicles 21, which gives us a basically more details. It fills it out a little bit more, shows it to us from a different perspective, right? And so in this particular passage in 2 Samuel, what the author is basically saying is, hey, God is not beyond control of everything that's happening. Right, we use the big term sovereign. God is sovereign, right? He knows what's going on. He's planned it. He's purposed it. He's, he knows what's happening. And so the, the, the writer of 2 Samuel is saying, God is sovereign over everything that's happening. In this same passage in 1 Chronicles 21, it talks about that an adversary incites David. Basically, that's the means that God uses to do this, right? But the author is trying to tell us God is completely over all. He's ordaining everything that's happened. He's working it all together for his purposes. And we'll see his purposes are not only just, but they're actually also merciful. So, how does God do this? Also, third, why is it a problem that David takes a census? Right? For those of you that know, a census is just going around and numbering people. We do it every 10 years in this country. Right? Why, why can that be wrong? Right? Why is that odd? Is it bad to go around and number people? Like, if I numbered everybody here, would that be wrong? Well, we've got we to gotta think back to what's happening in the context of Israel. Okay? So if you've been with us, you've seen that God has given Israel miraculous victories over and over again, especially as we talked about earlier this semester in 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath, right? God clearly made that happen. He's given them victory, he's given them victory after victory that they couldn't do on their own. Well, in chapter 23, right before this passage, it has this list of the mighty men of Israel, which is a fascinating list because you get to see all the amazing things they did and, and why they're mighty men, all that sort of thing. But you also get the idea that maybe there's a little bit of, of reveling in their own might, in their own strength, right? Taking pride in that. And then if you look, David doesn't number everybody. If you look in verse 9, who does he number? He numbers the fighting men. He numbers the strong men. He numbers the, numbers the people that can draw the sword, right? So what's David doing? He's actually numbering these people to say, look at how many awesome people we have that are strong, that can fight back. This is also towards the end of David's life. So he's kind of looking at it probably and saying, hey, let's look at how big this kingdom has grown since I've been king, right? So what David is doing is he's actually taking pride in this. He's actually taking pride in, in this kingdom that he says, oh, I have built. And so he's taking pride in it. And even though we're not kings, 
even though we don't live in ancient Israel, we can understand a little bit of what they've done and what David has done. Because like Israel, we're not always faithful, right? We could put whatever sin we want in here and say, yeah, God's anger is on because of sin, right? We know sin is evil and it's against God. Sometimes we don't follow God and his law, right? We, we put things in place of him. Sometimes we don't obey the leaders who are in authority. We rebel against our, our parents, our teachers, officials, coaches, right? Or maybe we're more like David. Maybe we're like David. We put our faith in things other than God, right? What do you count? Just like David, he counted the fighting men of Israel to say, this is where my strength lies. This is what makes meaning in my life. What do you count? Maybe you count your grades. Maybe you count the awards you have, the friends you have, the likes and comments you get on a social media post, right? I know for me growing up, one of the things I counted a lot was I counted grades, I counted achievements, right? If I can have this great list, then I know it's been good, I know I've done well. What do you put your confidence in? You put your confidence in the talents and the gifts and abilities you have and your humor, your ability to make people laugh, your intellect, how smart you are, right? We all count something. We put our confidence in those things. But what we see here is David wasn't glorifying God, but simply just amusing himself. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we meant to do with our lives? Are we meant to glorify God? Or are we, meant, or are we just simply amusing ourselves? And so we begin to see the sin like Israel and like David, and what then, right? I asked the big question, what can we offer? But we hear this thing about sin and we say, I don't think I can offer anything, right? Right? If, I'm not, if I'm like Israel, if I'm like David, I can't offer anything. But we'll see that's not actually the case. Because the story continues. The story continues. We have confession is the next part of the story in verses 10 through 17. Let me read that for us. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and said to him, Shall three years of famine come into your land? Or will you flee for three months before your foes will they pursue you? Or shall three, there shall be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel held out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aranya the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So we have this second section, the section, section of confession. So look at David's response. Right? It says in verse 10, his heart strikes him. Do you know that feeling? I've definitely felt that, right? You realize something is sinful and your heart strikes you. You get this deep feeling of despair. You're like, oh, oh no, this is really bad. And if you're like me, I, I feel that and I just want to hide. I just want to run far away. I don't want anybody to come find me. I just don't want to be found out, right? But David's heart strikes him and look what he does. 
he immediately goes to God and he asks for forgiveness. Right? David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Right? He confesses. He confesses fully. He says, this is what I did. He says, I was foolish. Right? And David's answer shows growth. He's showing that he's doing what's called repentance. He's turning from his sin and he's going in the opposite direction. He's taking personal responsibility. And we see God do something really odd here, right? He offers him this choice of three things, and we're kind of like, what is that? What's God doing? Well, God is actually giving him an opportunity to show that kind of growth. Because he has an option, right? It pretty much doesn't matter what option David chooses. There's still judgment coming. There's probably the same amount of people that will probably die. But God says, okay, here are the options, right? Three years of famine, three months to flee before your foes, or three days of pestilence. But here's why David's response shows growth. Because if he picks either of the two first two options, he's pretty much trusting in himself again. If he chooses a famine, he, th- he says, okay, I trust in myself to be able to have enough food, right, to be able to have a, a big enough agricultural burden to then you know, basically bring in all the food I have and then distribute it as need. Right? If he picks fleeing before his foes for three months, he still might be relying on the strength of his arm, the strength of his fighting men that he's just numbered. But instead, he chooses to rest only in God's hands. He says, let me rest in the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. And so the Lord shows both his justice and his mercy. He shows his justice because the punishment is carried out, and yet he shows his mercy because he stops it. Right? He stops the angel on a hill in front of Jerusalem. Verse 16. And in 1 Chronicles 21, we see David actually see the angel stopped on the hill in front of Jerusalem. It is amazing. I can't even imagine what that must have looked like for him to see the angel of the Lord stopped in front of Jerusalem. And so God shows mercy in stopping the angel. And David, again, even shows his growth even more because he says, Lord, let the consequences be on me, right? What have these people done? I was the one that sinned. Let the consequences be on me, verse 17. Let me give you an illustration of what this is like, Um, this kind of turning from sin and going and doing the right thing. So how many of you have seen the TV show Survivor? Any Survivor fans out there? I don't know how many seasons there have been, but there have been many. So in 2005, there was a guy on Survivor named Ian Rosenberger. And there were three people left. The winner was going to get a million dollars. There was three people left. It was him and his friend Tom and somebody else. Well, they were doing this endurance challenge where they had to cling to a buoy in the middle of the ocean. And whoever stays on the longest gets to pick which of the other two they want to remove. And that's going to be down to two people. Winner gets the prize. Well, the other person let go, so it was down to Ian, and it was down to his friend Tom. And he's clinging to this buoy. It's hours. You know, he's, he's thinking about what he's going to do. He's thinking, okay, if, if I stay on longer than Tom, he's a good friend, but he is my biggest competition, so I'll vote him out. It's going to make it easier for me to win the million dollars. And he was actually a Boy Scout. He's an Eagle Scout, so he, he has a lot of training for survival and things like that. And, and as he's clinging to this buoy, he starts to think about the Scout Law. Okay? which I don't know, I couldn't tell you in full, there are some people there that de- here that definitely could, but basically that, that a scout is trustworthy and a scout is loyal, and he gets to the word loyal and he thinks, that's not what I've been this whole game. I've been backstabbing, conniving, right? I'm about to vote out my best friend if I'm able to because I want this million dollars. So he thinks about it and he simply lets go. He lets go, his friend Tom ends up winning the whole thing, winning the million dollars, but Ian has, has been interviewed many times afterwards, and he said, no, it wasn't worth it. Because I would have used, every time I would have taken money out, I would have thought about that. 
thought about that choice, right? To go against what I knew to be true. And so David, in the same way, is turning from what is wrong, is turning from his sin and going in the other direction. And so like David, we've got to ask ourselves, what is our response to our sin? Like I said, I typically want to hide. I typically want to flee, go the other direction, right? Sometimes we like to blame it on other people. Well, this person, you know, put me up to it. Or, or you know, like this, we put it up to our environmental factors, right? This happened and I was in this class. And, you know, we like to blame it on other people. I'm blaming other things. But like David, we ought to make a full, true, and honest confession to God and say, it was me. I did it. I was foolish. And that's hard to do. It doesn't matter how old you are. That's hard to do. But the beauty of the Christian life is that it gets easier the longer you go. And that, that's what's meant to happen, right? By the Holy Spirit, that's something that we, we cultivate, that kind of habit. And so we also see growth, right? We, we need to look for the next opportunity to grow, to take the other option. Just like David, when God offered him the three choices, said, you know what? I'm going to cast my hand, my, myself into the hands of God this time, not rely on my own strength, not rely on my own power. So rather, we should immediately confess, but we should also look for the opportunity for growth, right? But what happens to the sin, right? How, how does God just stop the judgment here? Is he just doing it arbitrarily? What happens with that? Also, is all the Christian life is just kind of offering confession, right? Is there any more than that? So that's where this third piece comes into play. The third section is about sacrifice. That's verses 18 through 25. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranya the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded him. And when Aranya looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aranya went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aranya said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aranya said to David, Let the Lord my king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aranya gives to the king. And Aranya said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. But the king said, <clears throat> But the king said to Aranya, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offering and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for Israel, and the plague was averted from Israel. So we see in this third section this idea of sacrifice. Right? There's sin, there's evil, there's rebellion, and it still must be paid for. Right? If God doesn't pay for the, if, if the evil of the world just gets off scot-free, then God doesn't really care. Right? There's got to be justice, and yet there's got to be mercy. So David goes to build an altar, as we see. And if, familiar, if you're familiar with the Old Testament... One of the things that's really important in the Old Testament is the Old Testament sacrificial system where God gave them ways for their sin to be atoned for by the slaughtering of animals. Right? Somebody, sin leads to death. And so God gave them this sacrificial system in order for them to do that and so receive mercy. So David goes to offer a sacrifice because he recognizes the Lord has showed mercy, has stayed his hand, has stopped the angel on the hill overlooking Jerusalem. So he goes offer, to offer on this, on this threshing floor the name of the mountain is called Mount Moriah, as we see in 1 Chronicles 21. It's owned by this guy named Aranya, which might be actually his title. He's actually an Israelite, but he owns this threshing floor outside of Jerusalem. And so David asks, okay, let me, let me buy it. Let me offer up these offerings to God. And Aranya offers him that. He says, okay, I'll give it to you for free, right? You're the king. 
right? You can take it by force if you wanted to, but you're asking me kindly, let me just give it to you, right? Let me just offer you the oxen, the wood, the threshing floor, it's all yours. But look at David's response, right? David says no. He says he's going to buy it for the full price. Well, what is his reasoning, right? And this whole passage really boils down to this verse for me. I will not offer burnt offerings to my God that cost me nothing. He's going to buy it all. He's going to offer the sacrifice. And we see him do that, and the plague is averted. But he was the king. He could have taken what he wanted, right? It was offered to him for free. He wouldn't have even been asking for it for free. It was offered to him. But he says, no, I love God. His mercy is great. And so I'm going to offer him costly things. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, in, in the Gospels, we see in Luke 21 that Jesus is watching people put their offerings in the temple. And this widow comes up and offers two small copper coins. And he says to his disciples, she gave more than anyone else because this was all she had to live on. He recognized her costly sacrifice. And costly sacrifice is going to look different if you're King David or if you're a widow with two copper coins. But whoever you are, you offer costly sacrifice. But what's amazing, truly amazing about this passage is this isn't the last time we see Mount Moriah, nor the first time that we see Mount Moriah in the Bible. You see, David buys the whole threshing floor, and what ends up happening is this is where he chooses and where Solomon chooses to build the temple, where sacrifices would be offered continually for God. But before this, we actually see Mount Moriah in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 22, because this is the mountain where Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac and where God provides instead a ram instead of the sacrifice and gives the ram for sacrifice. You see, the Lord provided for their need for a sacrifice. And all of this, for, from Abraham and Isaac to, to the Lord staying the angel in front of Jerusalem to Solomon in the temple, it all points us into the New Testament and to Jesus. He's from the line of David. The New Testament calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the fulfillment of verse 17 when David says, Lord, let it be on me, let it be on my house. Well, Jesus was from the house and line of David, and yet he was also the Son of God. He himself was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem to stop the wrath of God and actually took it upon himself. God himself made flesh. He's also the costliest sacrifice. He lived a perfect sinless sacrifice. He left his throne in heaven to come for you and I. And he removed the plague, the plague of death, the plague that comes through us from our sin. He removes that plague for all who believe and will be raised to life just like he was. Now David doesn't see all of this story, right? He doesn't get to see what's coming, but he loves God and he offers costly sacrifices to him. So we should ask ourselves, do we offer and how do we offer costly sacrifices? Or do we find ourselves offering things that really don't cost us anything? Now, I'm talking to all of y'all who have come out on a really cold night, so I know it's costing you something right now, right? <laughs> but it's easy to say, okay, I've given my life to Jesus, which is true and good. But sometimes that's a convenient way to get out of some of the small, short-term implications of the gospel. Sometimes it's an easy way to say, kind of get out of doing anything at all, right? Not only have we given our lives, but have we given our Sunday mornings? Yeah, maybe our Sunday evenings? Yes. What about your Wednesday at 2 in the afternoon when you're tired and just want to go to sleep and maybe you haven't studied for your test and, and you see somebody else's paper, right? 
What is the costly sacrifice? Maybe it's a Friday night and you're at a friend's house, or maybe it's a Saturday and you're all alone on the internet. What is the costly sacrifice? Maybe it's the way we use social media, the way we use our phones, technology, right? The friends that we have, the friends that we don't have. At many times and at many places, there are opportunities all around us for costly sacrifice. And this is actually what we're meant to do because these sacrifices bring glory to God. And this chapter really sums up what it means to be after God's own heart, to be quick to repent of our sin and to offer costly sacrifices. Because in light of what Jesus has done, we should offer costly sacrifices. This is what David's story is all about. Now, he doesn't see the fulfillment. He only sees the promise. But we see the promise and the fulfillment. As a final illustration of this, some of you have heard the name of Eric Little. He was a runner. In 1924, so he's from Scotland, he's a Christian, and he was offered to go run in the Olympic Games. But he also felt a call from God to go be a missionary in China. And there's a movie called Chariots of Fire, which is really excellent. If you want to know more about the story, you can watch that movie. And there's a scene in the movie where he's talking to his sister, and his sister is like, what are you doing going to run in the Olympics, right? You need to be going to China. And he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. God made me to go to China, but God also made me fast. And what ends up happening, if you know his story, is he goes to the Olympics in 1924, but the heats for his race are on a Sunday. And he says, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to rest on this day. So instead of going to 100 meters, which he was meant to go to, which is his best race, he instead goes into the 400 meter dash, and the Lord actually gives him victory. He wins the gold medal in 1924 at the Olympics. And then right after that, in 1925, he goes to China, and he spends the rest of his life working for the Lord in China. Both of those things were costly sacrifices, right? We look at him going to China, and we say, yeah, that's, that's definitely a costly sacrifice, right? But the way he competed, the way he ran, the way, the way he wanted to do things to honor God was also a costly sacrifice. And the last thing that I think is fascinating about this passage is that there are two offerings mentioned here at the end, the burnt offering and the peace offering. Well, if you know more about the Old Testament sacrificial system, and I won't explain it a lot in, in detail, but the burnt offering is what takes away the sin. But the peace offering is David's way of saying, I want to come back and fellowship with you. And actually, as you do that offering, you get to eat part of it, and you get to burn part of it on the altar as if God is eating it too, right? Eating a meal with God. And so we don't atone for our sin by anything we do. We can't save ourselves. We can't get to heaven, right? Except for what, by what Jesus has done. But we have this opportunity in this life to offer God costly sacrifices because we love him, because he's saved us, because he's shown us his abundant mercy, because he stayed the plague from us. And so as we think about what it means to be after God's own heart, not only this semester, not only next semester, but the next year, the next years in middle school and high school and college and beyond, right? there's this idea that should come back to us is that we repent quickly and that we look to offer costly things to God. Because just like David said, he doesn't want to offer to God things which cost him nothing. So I encourage you all to think, what can I offer God that is costly? Not to be loved by him, but because I'm already loved by him and known by him and because of the great things he's already done for us in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you also that we have warm homes to go back to, warm showers and beds to get into. Thank you for the beauty of Thanksgiving where we can enjoy time with friends and with family. But Lord, thank you also for your word. 
which shows us what it looks like to live as Christians in this world, to show us what it looks like to offer you costly sacrifices. Lord, help us to dwell on these words. Help us to understand what that looks like, to really apply it to our own lives. And Lord, thank you that you've given us the strength to do this by your Spirit, and that it's all because of your Son, Jesus, who offered himself for us. Lord, would you bless now our small group time and keep all these and those aren't here that aren't here tonight safe through this holiday season. Amen.